Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Julian Archer. Look, thank you for, for coming along. Basically, I don't, I don't have the answers to a problem that I'm going to give you today. I have, I have the answer to one very, very important aspect of it. But I don't have a lot of the answers. I want to, but I want to open up a conversation. I want to open up a conversation about the effect of affluence on spirituality. I want to open up that conversation between each of us. I want to open it up in your conference. And I want to open up that conversation especially between you and God. Lord, what effect are the blessings that you're giving to me having on our relationship? That's the most important conversation I want to open up. But in line with that is the conversation that I want you guys to go back to your tents, back to your churches and discuss this because I think it's long overdue and you'll, you'll see why as we go through. So I'd like to start firstly with prayer because ultimately this is a conversation not between you and me but it's a conversation between the Holy Spirit and your heart and I want to invite the Holy Spirit into this place again this morning as we've already, already had, but I just want to, I, I need the, feel the need for the prayer myself. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are with them. Lord, I thank you that you are a Father who wants to give good gifts, and the greatest of those gifts is the Holy Spirit. And Lord, you have promised in your word that when we ask for the Holy Spirit, that you will give him to us. And Lord, I'm asking this morning on behalf of everybody under this roof that your Holy Spirit will prepare each of our hearts for the seed that you are going to plant this morning. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayer, for I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start with a, with a testimony. Every one of us has a testimony. In Revelation 12:11 says... They overcame Satan by the power of the blood and the word of their testimony. Now, if you were here at 7 o'clock this morning, put yourself in my shoes when I was here at 7 o'clock this morning and my testimony follows Rome's testimony. <laughs> if you weren't here at 7 o'clock, you won't get that. But if you were here at 7 o'clock, you know exactly what I mean. We all have a testimony. We don't all have to have Rome's testimony, but every one of us, has a testimony of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. And we encourage each other, we build each other up, we inspire each other by that testimony. I'm going to share my testimony with you this morning. It's a family testimony because I'm part of a family. 1971. I'm going to go back a little bit before that. When my dad, that's my dad on... Let me get this sorted because I'm going to have to get this sorted all week. My right is your right. Good. Okay, so on the right is my dad, and when dad was about 13, well, all of his childhood, he had to go to church eight times a week, 11 times a week in a, in a busy week, but eight times a week. He wasn't a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, he was a member of another denomination, and they went eight times a week. When dad was 13, his job in the family was to make the beer for the family. He was the homebrew kid, and unfortunately, he drank more than he should have. And by the age of 14, he hated church so much, not because he was drinking, but because he was going eight times a week. He hated church so much that he wanted to blow up his church. 
literally. And so back in the day when gelignite was much more available than it is today, he went to his uncle's farm, grabbed a few sticks of gelignite, grabbed the fuses. He was a pretty practical young fella. And he had it all planned. Sitting there in church eight times a week, he knew exactly where in that church he would need to lay the gelignite to drop it in one run, one big blast, which would have brought great happiness to his life. And so he had it all sorted, but he went to school that day. It was a school where he held a record. As a good religious kid, he held the record for getting the most cuts in the school. On average, over the two years of his junior high school, uh, year nine and year 10, dad averaged getting the cuts once a day. Good religious kid. He went to school and being young, he, he told his mate what he was planning to do with that gelignite. Bit of a brag session. Fortunately, his mate was a little bit sensible and he told the police because he could tell dad was serious. So the police came and picked up dad and, and uh, took him away and chatted to him about the problem. What's the hassle here? Dad explained to them how much he hated church. And when they dropped dad home that night, they took his parents aside and said, hey, we think you need to just back off from the religion a bit. (laughs) Which I'm not sure that they did because he took off from home soon thereafter and was living with his brother who had already left home. And a friend of his asked him to make a bench press. Now, We know what a bench press machine is now, a piece of gym equipment. But back in the 60s, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about gyms. Just to give you an idea of how little knowledge there was about gyms, actually, I'll I'll take you a little bit further. Dad was basically pioneering the bodybuilding industry here in Australia. Um, And so he made this bench press for his mate, and he made a profit. And he thought, oh, that's pretty cool. I'm going to make another one. So he made another one and sold it to another mate and got another profit, and another and another. And then somebody asked for a bar that they could put their weights on. So he made one of those and made a profit. And then they said, hey, do you sell weights? Because his prices were pretty good, the quality was good. He said, no, I don't, but I'll I'll start a foundry. And so he started a little foundry casting weights. And it went from there, and he started a company called Archer's Bodybuilding Equipment. And of course, he was supplying the PCYCs and and a number of different places. He he, uh, decided that because the, the gear was so cheap, because he was making himself, why don't I open a gym? Because there was this interest in pumping iron. And it was just sort of, he could see the seed of it growing. And he said, I'm going to open a gym. And he opened a gym. It was called Archer's Gym in Brisbane. And it was the serious gym. Before you know it, they had a 1,000 members. It wasn't a fitness center. There wasn't music. There wasn't big digital screens. There was grunting and sweat and swearing and blood and meat and protein and beer oozing. It was a serious gym. And the serious guys loved it. Rome would have loved it. Is Rome here? I don't know if Rome's here, but <laughs> And uh, Dad used to train four hours a day himself in that gym. And he'd, they'd bring out guys from, from America and different places and run these bodybuilding competitions. Guys that you might recognize the names of. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lou Ferrigno, the Incredible Hulk. Some of those guys. And they opened another gym. Got another thousand members. If you've been in the fitness industry, you'll know that you actually make your money, not out of memberships, but out of protein drinks and out of supplements and all these different things. And so they opened a health food store. And Dad had a little bit of a background in refrigeration. And so he opened a refrigeration business. 
By this stage, he was already 25 and had five businesses. Two kids, myself and my sister, and was married to mum. Business was going very well, but their marriage was absolutely shot. I don't remember it. You can see by the size of me there that I didn't realise just how, how bad their marriage was. But they had a lot of problems in their marriage. Dad was caught up in this business thing, this monster. I've been in business with him for a lot of years since, and we, we often say when a business is going crazy that you've got a tiger by the tail. You can't hang on, you can't let go. And that's what had mum and dad. They were both doing 18 hours a day in the different businesses. I mentioned about the pioneering of the bodybuilding industry. Did you know that the Queensland rugby union team in the late 60s, when dad was getting into the gyms, had no idea that if their men were stronger, they would have less injuries and be more fit. <laughs> I mean, that is so obvious today. We just take that for granted. If you're strong and fit, you're going to play rugby better. They didn't know. And they were getting creamed by the New South Welshmen who were getting money out of the casinos that went back into sport and they were able to pay for the best players. Barry Harker was, a, I think, a physio or something like that at the time and he got onto the Queensland rugby team and said, hey, you guys need to talk to a fellow called Ray Archer and he'll get you some gym gear for your guys, your rugby players, so that they can be stronger. Oh, well, I guess we can experiment with that. <laughs> and they did. And the last decade of State of Origin is... No, no, can't, <laughs> can't take the credit for that. Uh, but they, they were the days. It was pioneering. Dad is a serial entrepreneur. He pioneers things. But their marriage was absolutely hopeless. They had to make a choice between marriage and business, and I thank God today that they chose marriage. They sold four of the businesses, they kept the health food store, and they went to the bush. A little place between Brisbane and Toowoomba, a little town called Grandchester. What a name, Grandchester. It used to be a massive place. It had multiple pubs and all sorts of stuff because of the, it was the end of the railway line. But by the time we got there, there were only about 300 people in the whole of town and the hills surrounding. And we lived between a 2,000-acre cattle property and a 3,000-acre cattle property, and we had a 33-acre block in, in between the two. So this is now the 1970s. This is uh, 74. So three years after that photo, we moved to the bush to be hippies and we were a little bit late because the hippies were in the 60s uh, but we were busy then, mum and dad were busy so they didn't have time so we went out to, to grow our own food and try and survive on the land in the 70s and it was a carefree life, very carefree life, um, just growing up in the bush. I wasn't at school yet, my sister had just started school. Little school, 24 people when, when we started, I think, in the whole school, 24 kids. Running around barefoot, hair right down my back. Dad had a big beard. Mum used to wear those sort of paisley or whatever they were, dresses. And we, uh, we didn't wear a lot of clothes. Um, the reason being that we, we moved into a shed that was 8 foot by 12 foot. That's about 3 metres by 4 metres. And that's what we lived in, out there on the, in the bush, on this little block. There was no running water, no electricity, none of the, the luxuries that we have today. And so to have a bath, we would go down to the dam, which was on the property, 
And what's the use of, when, you, when you've got 5,000 acres of cattle around you, what's the use of wearing your clothes? What's the use of taking a towel down to the dam? You just, you get undressed at the house, if you had any clothes on to start with, and you walk down to the dam as a family, and you have your bath, and you walk back up as a family, and you dry by the time you get back, and you don't have to wash towels, because we didn't have a washing machine, and all was good. I still remember one day walking down to the dam, single file, you know, dad, mum, Kath, me, now I'm going to the dam. And the, the farmer next door was out checking his cattle on, uh, on his horse. And I can still remember standing there, talking to this farmer about his cattle and the weather and whatever else we talk about, and thinking there was something strange. But I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But, the, but there was something that was just not really right. When, when the block of land, one of the farms behind us was sold, it was a big hill. And it was put in the paper as land for sale overlooking nudist colony. <laughs> so, yeah, we were about 10 years late, but we were doing the hippie thing full bore. Mum and Dad had absolutely no interest in, in Christianity. Uh, Mum hadn't been raised a Christian, and Dad, of course, had been raised religious. We moved out of the shed. Dad built a house out of sandstone that he carved most of it himself out of the ground at a quarry at a place called Helladon and built this house. And as you can see, it was in the days of workplace health and safety. And, uh, well, at least we had clothes on for the photo. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so that, that's how the house was built. And it was a great, look, I, I just want to say again, it was a fantastic, carefree lifestyle. There was no God, but it was a fantastic, carefree lifestyle for me as a kid. They still had the health food store in Ipswich and mum or dad would work in there each, each day during the week. And every day a guy used to come in, his name was Harry Walker. There's Harry. That was a couple of years before Harry passed away. But when Harry used to come into the shop, he was in his mid fifties. He was an engineer with the railways in Ipswich. He wasn't an evangelist or a pastor. He was just a guy. And he would come in every day and buy a loaf of healthy bread from the health food store. We have no idea what he used to do with that bread because it was only him and Dot at home. And maybe he gave it to someone we, we still don't know to this day. But he would come in and what, what Harry was doing was a thing called friendship evangelism with a focus on friendship. And he built this relationship with mum and dad. And one day after maybe a year of this, he said, hey, there's a program coming to town and it's on how the Egyptians built the pyramids out of stone and you're building a house out of stone, Ray. How would you like to come along? And Dad thought, cool. Yeah, I could learn from the Egyptians. They, I mean, their stuff's still lasting. And, and Dad, when he builds stuff, he builds it to last. And he's like, this, this, Julian, this house is going to last hundreds of years. But then he saw what the Egyptians were doing and went, yeah, I can learn from those guys. So we went along as a family. Didn't learn anything about building stone pyramids or anything like that. Of course, they're going to stay standing if they're a pyramid shape. They can't fall down. And uh, so, but we met some wonderful people, met some great people. And that was it. Finished the, the program, went back to the bush. Harry kept buying his loaf of bread. And one day he came in and said, there's a, a program coming to town and it's on vegetarian lifestyle, vegetarian cooking and all that sort of stuff. Would you like to come along? Now, it's not rocket science to know that in the days of bodybuilding, when it was being pioneered, that vegetarianism 
was not on the front of Women's Weekly, <laughs> okay? It was back in the days where if you wanted to put on a pound of muscle, then you had to eat 100 pounds of raw steak or whatever it was that you thought you had to get that protein from it. There was no such thing as vegetarian bodybuilding. It was still all very early days. And so as a family, we were, we were certainly not vegetarian by any stretch of the imagination. I don't, I'll have to ask Dad sometime so I can share with you the actual information on how much meat he was eating. But it was, it was pounds per day because it was a rule. You had to eat this many pounds per day. And uh, so it was like, oh, no, I'm not really interested. But Mum said, hey, we've got a lot of vegetarians who come into our health food store. Why don't we go along, see what we can learn? That might help us to increase our sales. Okay. So they went along. We went along too. And would you, would you believe it? But the same people who were interested in Egypt were interested in vegetarianism. In a city as big as Ipswich, you know? So it was very cool. So we built this relationship with these people. Again, you know, re- hey, yeah, yeah. And we went back to the bush. Dad had a beard down to about here, which isn't unusual today. But uh, back, back then, it, it was sort of post, post-beard days. In fact, Dad used to tell me when he had a beard down here, he said, Julian, never trust a man with a beard. <laughs> so you young guys out there... <laughs> He said, never trust a man with a beard. And I used to think that was a little bit strange, but because he had one. But I remember the day that he shaved it off, he came to pick me up from school with my sister and I would not get in the vehicle with him. I had no idea who he was. I was crying my eyes out on the side of the road and my sister was saying, come on, it's dad, get in the car. And I'm going, no, I'm not getting in the car. He's a strange man. And just because he changed, I, I didn't remember him without a beard. So we were invited along to the vegetarian program. We went along, we went back to the bush And one day Harry came into the shop and said, would you like to come to church? Mum wasn't a churchgoer. Dad had been enough times for a few lifetimes. And Dad asked a question. He said, so what day do you go? That's a fair question from a guy who used to go every day. And he was hoping that he would say Sunday because that was the day we never went to town from the bush. He said Saturday. Saturday was the perfect day to go to town because we went in on every Saturday morning. We took our old Land Rover Ute in and we bought our groceries at Coles and we went home. So they said, okay, we'll come. So we went into town, we bought our groceries at Coles. We packed them into our 4X cartons because they were the only cartons that we had. We jumped in our Land Rover Ute, we drove up the street, we went to the Limestone Street Seventh-day Adventist Church in Ipswich. And we had a problem. Our Land Rover wouldn't lock, and we couldn't trust the people in Ipswich. Has anything changed? No, you guys aren't from Queensland, sorry. <laughs> we picked up our four Xboxes full of groceries, because we couldn't leave them in the Land Rover, and we walked into church, single file, as we used to do as a family. And in the Ipswich Seventh-day Adventist Church in the 70s, there was a back door at the centre, And then there were pews and then there were two aisles. And we would walk to that back pew and we would sit in the back pew. But before we did that, we would push all of our Forex cartons underneath the back pew and then we would sit on them. Long hair, beards, I don't know what we smelt like. Probably cigarettes and unwashed or whatever. I I really don't know. But the reason I give you all, all the details of that story is because the people in the Ipswich Seventh-day Adventist Church never said anything about the smell of smoke, 
the smell of anything else. The bare feet, the long hair, the groceries, or the forex cartons. They just loved us. They just loved us. You know, there's a saying when Jesus said to, the, to Peter come, and the other guys, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. What he didn't say in a sentence there but implied over the rest of the New Testament is, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You catch them and I'll clean them. You catch them and I'll clean them. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Mum and Dad were baptised into the Seventh-day Adventist church and they wanted to tell everybody that they knew about Jesus. The only way you tell people about Jesus is you jump on a plane, you fly to Egypt, you take photos of pyramids, you come back home, you buy a projector, you rent the local hall, you practice morning and night every day of the week and then on Sunday night you go and tell people what you've learned that week in that hall. And then the, the, that Sunday night, Monday morning, you start practicing the one for the next Sunday night, every morning, every night, and you do it beside your son's bedroom so that he hears every morning and every night that message all week. And then he comes along and helps put out the chairs. And that's what they did, town to town, all the local towns around where we were because they wanted to tell people about Jesus because he had made such a huge difference in their lives. We ran a, a small fruit and nut tree nursery at the time and we had 214 varieties of fruit and nut trees. And that's what we used, the profits from that business, to support what was called self-funded evangelism. One day, mum and dad made a step of faith and they said, Lord, we're going to sell this business. We believe you want us to go full-time into volunteer evangelism. But just in case we ever have to come back into business, we want you to show us out of these 214 varieties of fruit and nut trees, which one has a future in Australia let me just see if we've... Yeah, that's all good. Which one has a future in Australia? And as a new Christian, what do you do? How do you find out which one of 214 in your catalogue is the one that God wants you to keep? It's very simple. You ask God. And so they got down on their knees with their catalogue and a pen and they went through. Apples? No. Bananas? No. Cherimoyas? No. Durians? No, of course not. <laughs> you know, and they went through... <coughs> the list but the problem was they got down to about 10 they needed one they were going to be on the road so lord please we need we need to get this sorted and they went all the way through the list until they got it down to one and that one was a tree called the olive tree it was about 1985 1986 the olive industry didn't really exist in australia but they could they knew it was a hardy tree that it had good fruit and there were other uses for it and so they said, okay, Lord, we step out in faith, that's the tree we take. So they sold the business, took the olive trees and did evangelism from town to town. Had the trees in pots, they'd buy a house, they'd plant the olive trees in the backyard, they'd sell the house, they'd dig them up out of there, they'd go and plant them somewhere else, they kept these olive trees. 1993, uh, I graduated from Avondale College. Graduated on a Sunday, went back into business on the Monday. Now, when I say I went back into business... That sounds like I went back into business, but what actually happened was mum and dad were propagating olive trees in their backyard in Sydney where they were volunteer evangelists and they were trying to supplement the bit of uh, stipend that the conference was giving them by selling olive trees and they were selling a few out of their backyard 
And I said, well, I'll go and run that business up in Queensland and I'll run it as a, a full-time business. And I said, okay. So Melinda and I got married in January 94. We moved to Queensland. But before we moved, mum and dad rang up and said, hey, Julian, we don't think you're going to be able to run this business on your own. It's going to be too big. <laughs> I was like, what? Too big? You're running a part-time out of your backyard and I'm going to be there full-time. They said, no, we think it's going to be too big. We're going to finish up in Sydney. We're going to come up there. And that's what happened. In four years, it was the largest olive tree nursery in the world. We had 80 full-time staff and we were selling trees all over the place. We saw God's leading in so many ways in that business. After about three or four years of that, uh, sorry, five years, Melinda and I decided to go and work with ADRA in Sydney. And then we did three years in Nepal. Our boys were on the scene by then. They came over to Nepal with us. And then we, while we were in Nepal, or, or as we were going over to Nepal, Dad came to me with a cup of stuff, black, liquid, looked a bit like oil, greasy. No, no, it wasn't greedy. It just looked like black oil or something. And he said, Julian, here's our next business. He said, taste it. So I did. I said, Dad, you take that business. You do what you want with it. <laughs> but I'm going to stay in the real business. Well, to cut a long story short, Dad had discovered a thing called olive leaf extract. And that business went on to blow the other business right out of the water. I had to eat my words, as I have had to do 12 times with Dad. Uh, we, we were exporting to 25 countries. I came back from Nepal um, and worked to expand that business. In 2007, we sold that business. It was the last of 12 for Mum and Dad. And uh, I stayed on for a couple of years and then retired, if you can call it that. Retreaded, changed direction. Um, but basically didn't, didn't need to work. And over those years, we saw God's hand over and over and over again in so many different ways. Right up to the very day that we sold, we saw God's hand directly leading in our businesses. We saw answers to prayer over and over and over. And I've got a question, a question for you. Growing up in a home where my parents were evangelists, Hearing the evangelistic programs morning and night, year after year, through my teenage years, going into business, going through Avondale College, going into business, and seeing God's hand just make businesses and profits just go through the roof, over and over in business after business, what impact do you think that had on my spiritual life? Did I hear negative? Somebody might have read the book. <laughs> it should have brought me closer to God. But there was another factor. There was me, there was God, there was the business, there was the evidence of God, and there was money. The Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. We ran honest businesses. We ran businesses for God. The profits from those businesses were used to support all sorts of projects around the world. I believe that money is not evil. I believe that the love of money is the root of all evil. But if anybody ever tells you that money is neutral, don't believe them. Money is not neutral. Money has claws. And this week I'm going to share with you the effect of affluence on spirituality. Oh, sorry, I've skipped a couple of slides there. 
That's what I used to get out of bed for, to make profit graphs go upwards as fast as possible. Oh, that was just a, a poster that we used to have in pharmacies. We were selling in 25 different countries around the world. That's the olive leaf farm. Uh, 500,000 olive trees just for their leaves. No fruit, just for their leaves. So what happened to my heart over that time? Three things. I became proud. I was running a business that was making more profit than any, any of my mates. I became proud. I had better things than... than other people around me in society. Let me tell you, it's dangerous to breathe your own exhaust. It's dangerous to breathe your own exhaust. I became a Pharisee. I became judgmental. And I want to tell you that that's one of the hardest things to overcome, criticism and judgment. I became judgmental because my Bible told me over and over and over that if you obey, I will bless you. I must have been obeying because God was blessing me. And I must have been obeying more than all my mates because he was blessing me all, more than my mates. You see the problem? And I became self-reliant. God gave me so much I didn't need him. And I want to tell you this morning, God has given everybody in this room so much that you don't need him. Now, you won't admit that. I didn't admit that. But the way I lived showed that he had given me so much that I didn't need him. We're going to explore that more this week. A couple of years ago, I was trekking with my boys, Ethan and Jath, up in the Himalayas. We went back, and I came across a poster on the side of a trekking, on the side of the hill, and it said this, the fact is the moment financial stability is assured, spiritual bankruptcy is also assured. Ouch. For the 20 years prior to that, I'd been working hard to get financial stability, and I had succeeded. But in my heart, deep down in my heart, I knew that I had been sliding further and further from God. In my heart. The place where nobody else sees. And that's why I want to open up a conversation this morning between your heart and God. You can have this conversation with other people and that will strengthen you, that will build you up, that will educate you, that will inform you, that will inspire you. But the conversation that I needed to have was between my heart and God. That was what I needed more than anything else. There it is again. It's by Mahatma Gandhi. The fact is, the moment financial stability is assured, spiritual bankruptcy is also assured. I didn't realise that when I was abundantly blessed, and I want you to hear this very clearly, when I was abundantly blessed, I was in the spiritually most dangerous stage of my life. When I was abundantly blessed, I was in the spiritually most dangerous stage of my life. Was anyone over in Kessa's talk last night over in the Connections tent? Jesus and the rich kid? Yeah, the rich kid knew. He was in the spiritually most dangerous stage of his life. I needed to work out how to stop God's blessings from becoming curses. So the question is, is it possible to be financially stable without becoming spiritually bankrupt? Is it possible? The answer is yes. Let's turn to Matthew 6. We're going to have to keep moving pretty quickly. Matthew 6, verses 19 to 25 Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Who's talking? 
Jesus, is that a command or a suggestion? It's a command from Jesus Christ. If Jesus is your saviour, he's telling you to do something here or not to do something. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's a command too. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your what? There your heart will be also. Keep an eye on that word. We've got five days of heart coming up. Let's skip down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters. How many people? No one. Julian Archer. He can. Spent 15 years working out how to serve God and money. You know the solution? Give lots away. I want to tell you it doesn't work. It doesn't work. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else, like me, he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. What's mammon? It's an Aramaic word for money, riches, and wealth of every kind. He could have chosen the word money. You can't serve God and money. He chose the word mammon, because there is another word for money. He chose the word mammon. Money, riches, and wealth of every kind. You cannot serve them both. You can't, I can't. We can try, we can't do it. John Wesley, Christians should work as hard as they can to earn as much as they can, then spend as little as they can in order to give away all that they can. I don't know about you, but I'm really good at the first two lines. God gave me whatever it was that he needed to give me in life, including a serial entrepreneur father, an absolutely fantastic business managing mother, and whatever else God gave me, he gave me all I needed to do those first two lines. And I reckon a lot of you out here are very good at those two lines. The Protestant work ethic. We're good at it. We're honest, we work hard so our bosses like us and they promote us. Protestant work ethic. Between the second and third line there is a chasm so deep and so wide that it's basically impossible to get across then spend as little as they can in order to give away all that they can. Why is that so hard to get across? Because the more we earn, the more we spend. The more we earn, the more we spend. Now, the more I earned, the more I gave away. But also, the more I earned, the more I spent. Spend as little as they can in order to give away all that they can. This is how I found it. As my, it's faith and finance on a seesaw. As my finances went up, my faith went down. When my finances went down, my faith went up. Lord, please help me. I know I didn't have time for you when I was really busy last week getting those really good contracts, but please help me now. When my finances went up, my faith went down. Faith versus finance. Ellen White, Evangelism, page 561. In the history of men, we learn how dangerous is prosperity. Prayers are often requested for men and women in affliction, and this is as it should be. But the most earnest prayers should be solicited for those who are placed in a prosperous position. These men are in the greatest danger of losing the soul. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. It's an either or. A seesaw really struggles to have both ends in the air or both ends on the ground. When a person prospers, either God gains a partner 
or the person loses their soul. You've probably heard of the Gallup poll. They survey in about 140 countries around the world. One of the questions that they ask, does religion play an important part in your everyday life? Does religion play an important part in your everyday life? I would suggest that a 90 plus percent of you, when I asked that question in your mind, went, yeah, it does. It plays an important part in my everyday life. Another question that they asked, or another piece of data that they collected from the governments was the income, the per capita income in each of those nations, those 140 nations that they surveyed. And this is what they found when they put those two, the two questions beside each other. Per capita income, if you're in a nation where your per, per person income for the year is between zero and $2,000 per year, 95% of people will say, yes, religion plays an important part in my everyday life. When the income gets to $25,000 a year or more, only 47% still have an interest in religion. If that data is not solid enough for you, you've probably heard of a, a group called Credit Suisse. Every year they put out a thing called the Global Wealth Data Book. You can't read the, the little words on the right, but that's 215 countries that Credit Suisse analyzes financially to try and understand a whole lot of financial stuff about those nations. So I grabbed the Credit Suisse data, who are financial leaders in, in the world, and I grabbed the Gallup poll data, who are the survey gurus of the world, and I put them together. This is what I found. Actually, before I, get, before I go to that, who can tell me which adults in the world, which country has the richest adults in the world? Just throw, throw some names at me. Saudi Arabia, I think I heard. America. Australia, China, haven't got it yet. Norway, Bermuda, yeah, it's other people's money. <laughs> Switzerland, here it is. Number one, richest adults in the world, Switzerland. Number two, you've already said it. Us, us. Second richest adults, average net worth on the planet. Okay? You, you, you feel that, don't you? I mean, you know that. It's obvious. No. We are. We're the second richest. And I tell you what, for those of you who are mathematicians out there, you'll know that the median is the middle piece of data. So if we've got the poorest Australian, we've got every Australian adult, and we put the poorest Australian down that end with the lowest net worth, and say Gina Reinhardt or somebody up this end, and everyone was graded from poorest to richest financially, then the middle, piece of, the middle person in that line is called the median. And it gives you an idea of how evenly the wealth is spread in that nation. Switzerland is the richest nation in the world as far as average adult wealth goes. Australia, number two. When you look at the median data, Australia, you and I are number one and we are more than double Switzerland. You go back to your Bibles and start reading the text to the rich people. Whenever Jesus and the rich people met, it was ugly. Okay, let's keep rolling. It's a hard message. It's a hard message for us. Credit Swiss results. There's the top 10 or 11 richest nations. Switzerland, Australia, Iceland, Norway, USA, Luxembourg, Sweden, France, Belgium, Denmark, and the UK. And on, in the right-hand column is the percentage who said, no, religion does not play an important part in my everyday life. Australia, 67%, two-thirds of us. 
Sweden, 88%. Religion does not play an important part in my everyday life. Let's drop down. There's a great divide of 200 or something countries in the middle, and then we get down to some of the poorer countries, Thailand, India, Haiti, etc. Look at their mean wealth and look at the percentage who are not interested in religion. John Wesley again, wherever true Christianity spreads. What can you tell me about the foundations of those top 10 or 11 countries? What's their religion? Prior to them serving money. <laughs> it was Christianity. They're the Christian nations. John Wesley, wherever true Christianity spreads, it must cause diligence and frugality, which in the natural course of things must beget riches. And riches naturally begets pride, love of the world, and every temper that is destructive of Christianity. Wherever true Christianity spreads, it must cause diligence and frugality, which in the natural courts of things must beget riches, and riches naturally begets pride, love of the world, and every temper that is destructive of Christianity. That's where we live, folks. I don't know if you've seen that in your life. I saw that in my life perfectly. And I want to say that this tent would be a lot fuller this morning if other people who had that happen in their life were still here, if that hadn't happened to them. That, I believe, is one of the key reasons why people leave church in affluent nations and in poorer nations when God blesses them enough they leave. I also believe it's one of the key reasons that those of us who stay behind are usually Laodicean. You don't have to leave to have that happen. I was in the Sydney airport. I'd missed a flight with Tiger Airlines. Of course, you know, some of you are laughing about that, yeah, because you've done the same thing. They call it Tiger Airlines because it makes you go, grrr, when you... <laughs> When you get to the gate and they've closed it at 45 minutes before instead of 30 minutes before. Anyway, I missed this flight about six months ago and I'm sitting there watching the ABC News in the lounge and it comes up and it's reporting on antidepressant usage around the world. They've surveyed all these countries around the world to see which ones consume the most antidepressants per adult. Before I go any further, I want you to know that I believe antidepressant medication is as needed in our society as blood pressure medication, as diabetes medication, whatever it is, because our lifestyle is killing us, okay? So I'm not, this is not a judgment about antidepressants, it's just making a fact. They list the countries that use the most antidepressants in the world. Number one in the world is Iceland. You saw it was the third richest nation on earth. Iceland, why do they use it? They're sad, seasonal affective disorder. They don't see the sun for three months of the year. You know, I'd be popping pills too. So. They've got a reason. Second most, second highest consumers of antidepressants in the world? Us. Us. Second richest adults on earth with the most evenly spread high asset wealth. So if you, if you ever think, if I just earn a bit more, I would be happier, I'd be more satisfied, think again. The data, the Bible is against you and it's against my thinking too. Okay, we've got to keep moving. Fortunately, the next speaker doesn't come to the 11. I won't go over time every morning, but I just, this morning I just had to lay the foundation for why this message was so important to me and why it took me so long to learn it. As we go through the week, we're going to look at solutions. We're going to look at a beautiful, a beautiful thing. I won't, I won't let you in on it yet. The message gets harder before it gets easier. Many of you will know this quote. It was written in 1893, I think. 
Not one in 20 whose names are registered upon the church books are prepared to close their earthly history. That scared the life out of me for decades. Not one in 20. That means that 19 out of 20 who were, had their names on the books of the Seventh-day Adventist church in Ellen White's day were not ready to go to heaven. 19 out of 20. What I had never read was the reason. She goes on. They are professedly serving God, but they are more earnestly serving mammon. They are professedly serving God, but they are more earnestly serving money. Revelation 3, Laodicea. I won't go into all the details. These, these guys were so rich that in AD 60, an earthquake flattened their city. They refused all outside help and rebuilt their entire city from their bank accounts. They were rich. That was 30 years before this was written. About 95 AD, John wrote this under inspiration. Jesus talking to them. I'm going to start it. I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. That was the Laodiceans. They were proud. They were proud throughout the entire Roman Empire. They were proud of how rich they were. But you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And then comes the promise. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. A couple of years ago, when I was convicted that I needed to write a book, I needed to put something on the cover. So I went to a young guy at church who is a very, very talented artist. And I said, mate, I'm going to explain to you what my heart looked like for about 15 years. And I want you to draw it for me. Can you do that? He said, yeah, I can do that. And this is what he drew. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But what if I could hear Jesus' voice, muffled as it was through my distractions? What if I could hear Jesus' voice, but I couldn't get to the door to open the door because I had stuffed my heart full of all the blessings he had given me? What if I had stuffed my heart full of the gifts and was no longer worshipping the giver? We put a whole lot of different things in there. I, never, I didn't own all these things. I sold the Eiffel Tower years ago. But they represent, they represent different things in my life, travel, sport, screens, music, cars, preaching, applause, praise. You'll see right down the bottom left under the surfboard, there's a bodybuilding trophy in there because the guy who did the artwork for it was, I think it was Junior Mr. Queensland twice in a row. And that was his God. His body was his God. You might see something up there that you can relate to. You might see that Sport is something that God's given you a gift of sport, of music, of preaching, whatever it is, but you've put it in your heart and it's between you and God. And only you know it. Only you know it. Ellen White makes this statement, which I didn't receive until about six months after the book came out, sent to me by a friend from down south. I cried when I read it. Says the true witness, this was written in 1886, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The heavenly guest is standing at your door while you are piling up obstructions to bar his entrance. Jesus is knocking through the prosperity he gives you. He loads you with blessings to test your fidelity, that they may flow out from you to others. Will you permit your selfishness to triumph? Will you squander God's talents and lose your soul through idolatrous love of the blessings that he's given? I could have just given him that paragraph and he would have drawn the same thing written 120 odd years ago. Ezekiel, I'm going to refer to Ezekiel quite a bit this week. Ezekiel 14 verse 3 talks about the elders of Israel. God's talking to Ezekiel and he's saying, 
This is what the elders of the church are doing in your day. The elders of Israel have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble. They have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them what causes them to stumble. I was an elder. I was a church elder while I was doing all this stuff. I was preaching sermons, Sabbath school lessons. But I knew that I wasn't saved. In the King James Version, the word believe is used 131 times. The word faith is used 231 times. The word love, 280 times. And the word heart, 762 times. We're going to spend four days looking at our hearts. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. There's something about our hearts that God wants. It's a quote by John Piper, an American. We'll finish with this quote. The greatest enemy of, God for, for, of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife or husband. The greatest adversary of love for God is not his enemies, but his gifts. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. I'm just going to finish with a, a statement that I'm going to repeat every day this week. It's not the ultimate... You can't sort of get this sentence and then go home. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but here's a solution. As our affluence goes up, our knees must go down. As our affluence goes up, our knees must go down. I, I travelled to 50 countries before I had to pay for my own air ticket. I've worshipped in a lot of churches around the world. Anecdotal evidence shows me that the richer the nation, the shorter the sermon. Anecdotal evidence shows me that the richer the nation, the shorter the prayers. As our wealth goes up, our knees must go down because if they don't, we're going to hell. And the more our affluence goes up, the more our knees must go down. And not just our knees going down. There'll be times when you need to be flat on your face on the floor, crying your eyes out. Not just for the things you need, not just for the things you want for you or your family, not just for some of the issues that sin has put into society and into your life, but that you will be what God wants you to be and that you won't let his blessings become curses in your life. Because if you aren't praying that, if you aren't fighting that arrow from Satan, you will lose. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you for your patience. I want to thank you for your patience with me since I woke up this morning.
Lord, I want to thank you for your love. I want to thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, I want to thank you that you were here in this tent, that you were touching our hearts, that you have planted a seed again in my heart, that you have planted a seed in others' hearts here this morning. And Lord, I just pray now that as we leave this place, that your Holy Spirit will remain with us and that those seeds will have fallen on fertile ground. Lord, I pray for this entire campground, that your Holy Spirit will be here, that the angels will be stationed at its corners to keep out the distractions, to keep out the problems. Lord, I pray for people who are here who are in business. And Lord, they've taken this week off from their business. They've come here, they're still connected by phone, by email because they need to be. But Lord, I just pray that you will please protect them from the things that Satan wants to throw at them this week to distract them from these meetings. And Father, I thank you for hearing our prayers because we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456 Our email address is radio at 3ABN Australia org dot au that is radio at the number 3ABN Australia all one word dot Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc P.O. Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia Thank you for your prayers and financial support.
than a worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. He's fairer than lilies of a rarest blue. He's sweeter than honey from I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today and to be This world affords today. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.